Everybody wants to save the earth. Nobody wants to help mom do the dishes. Peter O'Rourke realized in this statement that everybody wants to be extraordinary. Everybody loves the extraordinary. Everybody wants to be amazing. We all want to be amazing. Are you amazing? And here Michael Horton reminds us, I quote Horton, a small life is still a meaningful life. And the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me, and that is enough. Is it enough that amazing grace has saved a wretch like me? God does amazing. God's amazing. God does the amazing. God does the extraordinary. In our text this morning, we see God do the amazing, the extraordinary. By his spirit, he delivers David. But he also does the ordinary. But we're drawn to the extraordinary, are we not? We are drawn to the extraordinary in Scripture. But what about the ordinary? More often than not, God's amazing grace is found in the simple things. Now, we do believe God does all things. Therefore, God does extraordinary. So we as Christians, we pray for miracles. We pray for miracles. But don't forget to pray that the doctors use the right medicine. The ordinary. And when God delivers, praise the Lord and thank the doctors. You see, God uses means. And God means business. That's the title of my sermon this morning. God means business. What I mean by that is God uses means. And in our text this morning, we will see that God will use and do various things. His business. And his business is salvation. And his business is good. And here in our text, there are three movements in this text. There are three movements. Verses 1 through 7, the first movement, Saul tries to kill David, and Jonathan delivers David. And that's the first means that God uses to save, an ordinary means. He uses Jonathan. And then the second movement is verses 11 through 17, Saul tries to kill David, and Michal saves David. David, another means, again, ordinary. And then finally, the third movement is verses 18 through 24. Saul tries to kill David. And this time, the extraordinary, the Holy Spirit delivers David. And so we begin this morning in our text with the ordinary business of salvation. Verse 1 of chapter 9, and Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Now, previously in chapter 18, everyone loves David. Everyone, including Saul, in chapter 18. Saul loved David. But then something changed. You see, God changed. 
God changed the kingdom. God has taken the kingdom from Saul and he's given it to another. And that other is David. And Saul begins to see that because God changes David from a lowly shepherd to Israel's greatest warrior who is fast becoming Israel's greatest leader. And this change has worked within Saul in his flesh, a jealousy. And now he's jealous. That's the mellow drama. Jealousy. And now we see in verse 9 of our text, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. Here's another change. This harmful spirit, it says, this evil, that could also be translated evil spirit. The word harmful also means evil in the Hebrew. This evil spirit. And what does it mean that this evil spirit is from God? I asked that question last week, and it's the same answer. It means God is in control. It's from God. He's in control. I love Luther here. Luther says, or said, the devil is God's devil. God's in control. It also means that God uses various means. He's a God of means. God means business, and he uses a diverse set of means. Even calamity, even hardship. We read in Isaiah 45, 7, I, the Lord, I form, says the Lord. The Lord says in Isaiah 47, 45, 7, I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. God uses diverse means, including kings and evil spirits. Now, the question for us is why? Why does Saul have this evil spirit? Why did God use this evil spirit? Why does he allow it? What is he directing it for? God has many reasons for doing the things that God does. And we don't always know those reasons. Just go ask Job. He'll say, I don't know. In the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his pain, I don't know. But the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and I'm going to bless the Lord no matter what. Now, the Lord uses these diverse means. One thing we do know about Samuel that we got to bear in mind in this text is that he has been condemned by the Lord. Yahweh has condemned Samuel. What does it mean to be condemned? Paul reminds us in Romans 1. Paul reminds us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppresses that truth, who suppresses truth from unrighteousness. And so Paul argues that God gives up, and he uses that phrase throughout Romans 1, and God gives up. Those who exchange the worship of the creator for the creature those who worship creation, money, mammon, all any idol in your life, those who do that, Paul says, God gives up. And then those who exchange natural relations for those that are unnatural, which is America on steroids right now, Paul says, those who give up natural relations with men for men and women for women, God gives up. God gives them up. And then those who exchange the truth of God for a lie, Paul says, God gives up. And what happens when God gives up on a nation? 
or when God gives up on a church or when God gives up on a people. The rest of Romans is clear. The spirit departs. The spirit leaves. Now, now there's no more of that intercession. There's no more of the spirit, as Paul says, who helps us in our weaknesses. No more. Who prays for us with that groaning, with the prayer of intercession. No more. Who works all things together for our good. No more. And what happens without the Spirit is we, we have no longer the means of God's grace, the means of his care, the means of his hand. And what do we have when we don't have the means of grace? We don't have God. And we're without hope and without God in this world. And without the ordinary means of grace, life is hell. That's Saul in this text. Without grace, without faith, he's left with his flesh. And so now he's just operating in the flesh. And that was chapter 18. In chapter 18, he's just in his flesh. And he's starting to hate, and he hates the victory of David. He hates David's success, and that hate just burns within him, and he desires murder as the flesh. Jealousy works. He begins to hate David. He begins to secretly plot his demise, secretly tries to murder him, secretly sends troops. He lies, all of these secret things. But by the time we get to chapter 19, the cat's out of the bag, and he explicitly says to his servants, to his son, to everyone, kill David. But there's one problem with that command, and that problem is God. God means business. Verse 1 of verse 19, or chapter 19, we read that you should, he has this command, kill David, and then the text says, but Jonathan's son loved David. And that but is important. Saul wants to kill, but there's a problem. Jonathan loves David. And so... Verse 2, so Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Now, this verse has so, this chapter has so much irony. And one thing you must know about Hebrew narrative, Hebrew narrative loves irony. And here's the irony. As Saul is conspiring to kill David, now Jonathan is conspiring to save David. And Jonathan does secrecy. Saul did secrecy to condemn David. Now Jonathan does secrecy to save David. Jonathan is a means of God. God means business. He's using Jonathan, an ordinary means of salvation. The love of this, Jonathan's love for David is a means that God uses to preserve David. An ordinary means. And then also, Jonathan here rebukes his father. Verse 4. He says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. And his father said to him, And he said to his father, Excuse me, he said to his father, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you. Jonathan's saying, Your sin or what you want to do to David is irrational. It makes no sense. Why do you want to kill David? He says, Because he's, his deeds have brought good to you. He's been good to kingdom. He's being good to king. Why would you want to kill something that's so good for our country, for our people, who's good for you? And the answer is because sin is stupid. 
Sin does stupid. <laughs> That's what we see in this text. Saul is being stupid. And not only that, he's innocent. Now he uses a moral argument. Actually, he uses here a theological argument, a moral theological argument. He says, for he took his life in his own hands. He's an innocent man. He's a hero. And he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Here's the theological argument. David glorify the Lord. And all that David has done, he's done nothing but glorify the Lord. Why would you want to kill one who is glorifying the Lord? He's innocent. He's an honorable hero. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will, and here's the, here's the moral argument. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Why will you violate, why would you dare violate the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder? He's rebuking his father in his sin. And this, by the way, is how you do Matthew 18, which is a means of reconciliation. Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And I would argue this is how you bring the fault to your brother, to your neighbor. You want to bring a moral, biblical, theological argument. You want your brother who has sinned against you to see why and how that he might repent. And if you do it, you'll gain your brother. So get, let him know how he's violated God's word. Let him know how he's violated the Ten Commandments, how he's failed the glory of God. And if you do it well, in love, you gain your brother, the text says. Or if you gain your brother, if he listens to you, rather. He has to listen to you. There is sin in the world. And it seemed that Jonathan gained his father. Verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So he swears not to harm David. Now the question for us when we look at this swearing, I, I do want to answer a question, and that question is, was this swearing a lie? Is swearing a lie? Jesus himself said, do not take an oath. Do you remember that verse in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not take an oath. Do not swear oaths. Does that mean what Jonathan did here was, or excuse me, what Saul did here is sinful? Does that mean as Christians we should not take oaths? Now, we usually deal with this question in our catechism classes, but I want to deal with it this morning. Heidelberg Catechism, our own, our own catechism says, I quote, it is appropriate to swear reverently by the name of God when the magistrate requires it or otherwise to help maintain and promote fidelity and truth to the glory of God and our neighbor's good. For such an oath is grounded in God's word and used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. Now there are some Christian traditions that believe you can't swear at all because of Jesus' statement, do not make oaths, do not make an oath. But the problem with this is that Jesus swore. Jesus said, I quote, I swear to you by the living God. Paul summoned God as a witness. Even angels swear oaths to God. Listen to Revelation 10:5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore to God who lives forever. And even God the Father swears oaths. 
Leviticus 24, 16 says, whoever God the Father says, whoever blasphemes, or the law says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord, or this is the Lord speaking, shall surely be put to death. So what we recognize when Jesus says, do not make oaths, he is saying, do not swear falsely. He's speaking to the Pharisees through their pharisaical casuistry, used religion to lie. They would actually swear to lie. And so what Jesus is condemning is using religion to sin, which happens in the church, right? You see, God is glorified by swearing. When we appeal to his name that we are telling the truth, we are swearing to one who is higher than all things, who can confirm the truth and can punish those who deny it. And it is an appeal that ends all arguments. As Hebrews 6.16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes the oath is final for confirmation. And who is the greatest that we could swear to but God alone, who knows the heart and is in position to punish every false oath? So swearing an oath, in swearing an oath, we confess our faith to God alone who is the verifier of truth. And by appealing to God, we honor him with an honor that the Israelites used in days of old. I read Deuteronomy 6, 13, the command, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve and swear by his name alone. So what we see in this text is Saul swearing is a sin, but not the swearing itself, but it's false swearing. For as soon as David is successful in the text, as soon as he is successful again, because the text says that he comes back to David, all is good, but then there's war. And then there's war. We're like, oh, here goes the man of war, David. And he is successful again. And then Saul is angered again. The spirit enters him. He now wants to kill David. And then we have this interesting scene where David is in the uh, throne room with Saul. And Saul has the spear in his hand. And, and the evil spirit come along. And, and Saul attempts to uh, kill David. And David eludes him. With the Saul. And this, this scene really just shows how much a loser Saul is. And there's a lot of irony in this sin as well. He's such a loser. You see, David is victorious over Saul, just as David was victorious over Goliath, who came after David with a spear. And now Saul, another type of David, attempts to kill, or another type of Goliath, attempts to kill David with a spear, and he loses. The scene is just really showing the irony and how much a loser Saul is. And so Saul has tried to kill David, and Jonathan has saved him, and now Saul tries to kill David, but his daughter Michael saves him, or John, Saul's daughter saves him. Saul sent messengers to David, verse 11. He sent these messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning, but Michael, remember a while ago we said, and he tries to kill him through Jonathan, but Jonathan, now it's but Michael. You see here, God's using means to save. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So she not only tells David, she not only conspires with David to leave and flee, but she helps him. So Michael, verse 12, so Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And she does more than just help him. Verse 13, Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. This is very, there's a lot of irony here as well. This image, she took an image, it's an idol. 
So she's taking an idol, something that has no life, something that's evil. Idols have no life. Idols are evil. The Bible, the Bible's, the Bible's clear on that. But here's the irony. The thing without life now saves David's life. And the thing that is evil is now good. It's saving David. You see, God uses diverse means. God uses lots of means. We could say he works in mysterious ways. He works ordinarily. And he saves. And not only that, Michael, Michael, she has to then lie. She tells a fib, hey, he's sick. He's got the corona. <laughs> they only had one mask on, so they wouldn't go in the room because you need two. Or three, maybe. I don't know. So they got the corona. They won't go in. I'm just kidding. Not the corona. I just, that's not in my notes. I just put that in there. But he was sick, so they wouldn't go in. I can say they wouldn't go to church. because Never mind. I can go a lot of places with this. Anyway, they wouldn't go in, and so then she lies again. And then when Saul comes, and Saul's like, where is he? Because it's, it's, it's clear he's not there. She tells another fib. He would kill me. He was going to kill me if I didn't let him go. And here we see another means. Here, Michael lies. Now, is this lying wrong? Because this lying only saved David's life. We could call this a lie of necessity, perhaps. It is that lie that preserves a greater truth. She saved David's life. She saved her own life. Now, the Christians, for us to ask ethically, is this lie of necessity, lies of necessity, can Christians practice these means? Perhaps we go to Germany in the 30s and 40s when the Nazis knock on the door of those good Lutheran Christians. And they answer, and the Nazis say, you got any Jews in here? And those Christians said, oh, no. Ugh, Jews, bah. And as soon as they shut the door, they say, oh, come out, it's safe now. You see, that line preserves a greater truth. It preserves the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. So it seems biblical to me. It seems good. And what we have here in our text so far is two of Saul's children, two of Saul's children saved David. And in both instances, David was simply a passive co-conspirator. And ironically, Saul's own flesh and blood are colluding against him. They colluded against their father to save Jonathan. And here God is using these ordinary means, the love of Jonathan and the love of Michal to save David. But now he's on the lamb. And so he runs to Samuel. And now in verses 18 through 24, Saul tries to kill David. But this time the Holy Spirit intervenes in the extraordinary. That's because David goes to Samuel. And Samuel's a great guy and all. We love Samuel. I mean, the book's named after Samuel. We're big fans of Samuel. But here Samuel doesn't really help. Samuel's like, oh, let's go to my chapel in Naoth. Let's go to the temple in Naoth and all will be good. But no, it only all, mostly a trap. Everyone sees them. Everyone sees this old man and David go to Naoth in Ramah. And so Saul says, where are they? And they all go, Naoth and Ramah. And now David's trapped. And so the Holy Spirit intervenes. 
And then Saul sent, verse 20, Then Saul sent messengers to David and Ramah and Naoth. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing ahead of them, the Spirit of God rushed upon the messengers of Saul, and they began prophesying. And then Saul sends more messengers, and the Holy Spirit overcomes them. The Holy Spirit conquers them. They begin prophesying. And he sends more, and again, they begin. And the God, the Holy Spirit, their Holy Spirit's too powerful for Saul's forces. And Saul, like any good king, like a father usually says, or an owner of a business, well, if you're going to do something right, what do you got to do? <laughs> you got to do it yourself. And so Saul goes to David, and the Holy Spirit overcomes Saul. And he is overcome. And not only is he overcome, the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in this text, makes a mockery of him. Makes a mockery of his power. Makes a mockery of his prestige. Verse 23. And he went there, that Saul, went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And there he stripped off his clothes and he prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? What's important about this text, you have to realize in the ancient Near East culture, in that world, your clothing represented who you were. Your clothing represented your power or lack thereof your prestige or lack thereof, and your place. And Saul, you know, is arrayed in all the finest royal wear. He was wearing, wearing the clothes of royalty, the, crow, the clothes of power. His clothing represented the most powerful in Israel, so in an ironic twist, the Holy Spirit strips him of his royal garments. And made him nothing. You see, the Holy Spirit, God has already, already, already said, you will not be king. And so the Holy Spirit would not let him stand before God dressed as a king. And he shamed him. Naked all night. You see, friends, Saul did everything in his power to wipe out David. Yet he could not because God means business. And God uses means to do his business. And this text is teaching us that salvation is of the Lord. And when the Lord saves, he saves ordinarily and he saves extraordinarily. And the ordinary and the extraordinary come together perfectly in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was an ordinary man. The Bible is clear that he was just like you and me in every way, in his flesh. In his flesh, like you and me. And in his ordinary humanity, we have our righteousness. You see, Jesus is the true and righteous man. The one greater than David who glorified the Lord in all that he did. The true champion, the true warrior. And by his ordinary work of salvation, we are secure. You see, by the ordinary birth of Jesus, we have our innocence. He had a mother. By his everyday life, we have our obedience, a life of obedience. And by his painful death, we have the satisfaction for sin. But he's also extraordinary. He's God of God. 
And by the extraordinary work of Christ, we have salvation. You see, by his virgin birth without father, we have our election. We know we are saved. By his baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're children of God. By his resurrection, we have justification and you are the righteousness of God. And by his ascension, we have glory. The ordinary and the extraordinary. You see, the cross is extraordinary. The cross is extraordinary. It is the power of God unto salvation, but it is also ordinary. It's the simple things of God. It's the simple thing of God that he now uses. You see, God not only saves us by the extraordinary power of the cross, he now rules and shows us how to live by the cross. This means that God's love for you is not found by your success, but in your sin and misery. You got a grace greater than your sins. It also means that God's love for you is not found in your victory over past trials and troubles. The cross means love. And that love is found not when you're victorious. It's the life of the cross. It's found when you're simply bearing under the weight of the trouble. And in that misery, in that suffering, you're still standing. That's the cross. That's our salvation. And you know by that cross that God loves you. The clearest evidence that God has not deserted you, that he loves you, is the cross. Life under the cross is simply life. It's got good times, bad times, all the joys, pain, sin, and death. And Christ is enough. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.